Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we ask you, as we do every time we come together, to be with us here in this place. Speak to us in this time as we consider your command that we be just. Make my words now to be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is the third week of our class on the biblical worldview. Uh, This morning we're going to be talking about justice. I'd like to reiterate once more why we're doing this class, even if so many times over the course of it I'll feel personally under-equipped to speak authoritatively on these issues. Uh, The reason is that the world outside feels no hesitance to speak on these issues, whether or not the speaker is equipped to do so. Uh, So there's a lot of talk in the world about identity, sexuality, justice, the interrelationships between men and women. And it's out there, but very little of it is actually helpful. Even less of it is biblical. So it's incumbent upon me as your pastor to try to teach you God's good news and good plan for these things, and this week, his plan for justice. And we're doing this, trying to teach you God's plan, so that when you're asked to say something or make a comment or somebody at your Thanksgiving table says something, you don't just necessarily default to whatever the last thing you heard on the news was. Instead, you can found a response on the Word of God, so that in obedience to the calling of Ephesians chapter 4, you're equipped for ministry in the world, whatever that ministry looks like. Obviously, not everybody's going to be an official, quote-unquote, minister in the church, but we all have ministries that we take part in in the world. Uh, Like last week, we have blank question cards and a box in which to put them rather than try to answer questions off the cuff in just the last few minutes between when this class ends and when the nursery lets out. I'm going to collect questions throughout the time and then the last class will just be Q&A. That will give us more time and will also allow me to do the uh, research that answering some of these great questions will probably require. So do also avail yourself of our reading list. As I've been saying throughout this time, there are many thinkers writers and theologians who are more thoughtful, who have studied more deeply, and who are more effective communicators on these issues than I am. Please take advantage of their work, just as I have, in preparing what I'm sharing with you in these classes. So as we've been doing each session of this class, let's get ourselves situated in the Bible. I'm going to read a very familiar passage to you, at least one verse of what I'll read should be familiar. This is Micah chapter 6. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt, And redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised. And what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? with calves a year old? 
Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? This is the word of the Lord. So the Lord requires that we do justice. Injustice, therefore, is sin. Okay, so if justice is required and injustice is sin, how can we know what is just? This seems to be a very important question. And as Christians, we must look to the Word of God. We look to the Bible. And as we've been saying during each of these presentations on identity and on sexuality so far, if we actually believe that there is a God, that changes everything. If there actually is an almighty creator God who spoke into the world, then what he has to say about justice and about anything else must carry the day. But of course, as we live in the world today, there are many visions of justice, even some that sound good, that are not in the final analysis biblical. So it's going to be important for us as we consider what justice is and what God's good plan for justice is that we distinguish between biblical justice and other kinds of justice, which just for the sake of distinction, and I sort of wrestled with what term I might use in this class because so many of these terms are so freighted now, we're going to try to distinguish between what I'll call biblical justice and what we'll call, for the sake of this class, social justice. Now, it's worth noting here what we are not going to try to accomplish this morning, which is actually a lot. We're not going to get into policy. Uh, what we're really trying to do today is to look at two competing worldviews. That means we're going to have to look at the fundamental assumptions of each of the worldviews we look at rather than the outcomes necessarily. So to that end, what we're going to be talking about this morning is the vocabulary and the assumptions of these justice conversations. We can't talk about things like reparations for slavery, policing policy, affirmative action, graduation rates, or anything like that, even though those are all good and interesting conversations to have, we can't actually have conversations like that until we can agree on a shared language with which to have the discussion. And that's the problem that we're going to find, that social justice language and assumptions don't ultimately square with the biblical language and assumptions about justice. So I think the place I want to start is a simple definition of biblical justice on the one hand and social justice on the other, and then try to sort of flesh each one out a little bit. Now, as I alluded to at the beginning, social justice can be a slippery term. After all, all justice is social. Uh, Thaddeus Williams notes that no one is concerned about justice if they're stranded on a deserted island. All justice is social. So I'm using social justice as sort of a shorthand for what is sometimes called critical social justice or social justice theory. So with that said, let's turn our attention to a couple of definitions. I have a good friend who says that, well, biblical justice can be basically defined as impartiality. So we heard in our, song, our reading this morning in church, 
and our um, prayers of the people. Social justice, again, standing in for critical social justice or social justice theory, is actually more like what he called a studied partiality. Here's what he means by that. In James chapter 2, the apostle calls us to, quote, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? If you show partiality, says James, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, the same command is true in the Old Testament. Leviticus 19 says that you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. So that's boiled down biblical justice, impartiality. On the other hand, Social justice, again, as it's commonly thought of in our current day, is actually not interested in impartiality. It employs, as my friend said, a studied partiality to figure out where iniquities exist and to try to right them. As justice theorist Ibram Kendi has said, quote, the only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. And the only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. Now we'll look in more detail about how social justice employs this kind of studied partiality here in a second. Now we should note as we get started that the socioeconomic example that we found in James and Leviticus about rich and poor is only one kind of partiality. There certainly exists partiality based on race, on gender, on physical attractiveness or ability, and a host of other things. Partialities like this are real they do exist, and they are sinful. And we sinners are prone to them, even Christians, even within the church. We must not, as we talked about at the end of our time and our discussion about sexuality, pretend that these sins don't exist or repress them. We confess them wherever we find themselves, in ourselves, in our churches, or in the world. We mortify them in the flesh, give them over to Jesus for his redemption. So as I make this argument this morning for biblical justice over against social justice, I'm not for a second, and hear me clearly now, arguing that injustice doesn't exist or that the church has not ever fallen short of its calling. In many cases, it has. But the ideal of biblical justice remains the ideal to which we are called to strive. And it is a better way than what the world is currently calling social justice. So Jesus, in Matthew chapter 15, said that, quote, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Jesus locates sin in the human heart. Social justice, on the other hand, sees the sin of injustice as fundamentally a state issue, a community issue, not a heart issue. The problem is society at large, not individual hearts. 
Social justice, according to the many of the definitions that I found as I was researching this, has to do with the just distribution of advantages, resources, and privileges to groups of people living in a certain place at a certain time under a certain government. Therefore, social justice becomes not about individuals and their sinful hearts, but about groups and their inequitable outcomes. Now again, this is not to say that injustice cannot take on a systemic shape. It certainly can. A group of individuals with sinful hearts can absolutely and have absolutely set up sinful systems, which must be reformed. The caste system in India, the transatlantic slave trade, East Asian sex trafficking, and many other systems in this world are unjust. And Christians should be at work dismantling those systems and systems like them. But as we'll see by the end of our time, it sort of can only work properly one way. While redeemed and changed hearts can work to bring about justice, including systemic justice, it doesn't really work the other way. If calls for justice, even well-intentioned efforts to work toward it are based on faulty assumptions, they cannot fully succeed in bringing about the change that they desire because true justice requires changed hearts. So, let's get into the nitty-gritty of the difference between social justice and biblical justice. This morning, just for the sake of our time, we're only going to look at three areas, three main areas, through which we can highlight the differences between these two worldviews and see as we go through them that social justice, or what we're calling social justice, is simply insufficient compared to what the Bible has to say about real justice and God's good plan for it. So first, we're going to look at how people are divided up in the world. You know the old, there are two kinds of people in the world, creamy peanut butter people and crunchy peanut butter people, or Elvis people and Beatles people. We're going to look at how social justice theory divides people up, and then how the Bible divides people up. Second, We're going to look at how each kind of justice deals with power. And third, we're going to consider the concept of truth, what it is, where we can find it, and what we can do with it. Then after we look at those three areas, we'll sum up. We'll talk about what real justice is and how we might work toward achieving it. So the first area in which we can see the distinction between biblical justice and social justice is the way these two systems divide people up. In the Bible, it's pretty simple. There are two kinds of people in the world, but not creamy peanut butter and crunchy peanut butter or Elvis and Beatles. Uh, in the Bible, there are two kinds of people, sinners and Jesus. <laughs> Romans 3 lays this out. What then? asks St. Paul after having described the advantages that Jews have in being God's chosen people. Are we Jews, he asks, any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. 
There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, certainly we know that in Christ, we are called righteous, but this is an instance of what theologians call imputation. Abram's faith, Paul reminds us, is credited to him as righteousness. Imputation is the act of attributing a characteristic to someone who does not by nature have that characteristic on his or her own. On account of his finished work on the cross, Jesus' own righteousness is imputed to you. It becomes yours, but you do not have it by your own nature. Outside of Christ, no one is righteous, the Bible argues, period. No one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, in the biblical view, we see impartiality. All of humanity shares this common identity marker, sinners under the law of God. Of course, even that is secondary to the first identity marker that every human being shares, that of being created in the image of God. And then, in Christ, all of redeemed humanity shares even another common identity marker, washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, But the dividing line is still the same. Sinners and Jesus. It's just that we redeemed are now hidden in Christ. Social justice, on the other hand, does not divide people up into sinners and Jesus. Social justice theory tends to divide people up into oppressors and oppressed. In a social justice schema, every possession, every resource Everything is taken or possessed at the expense of someone else. In their book called Is Everyone Really Equal, Aslam Sensoy and Robin D'Angelo create a grid called Group Identities Across Relations of Power. Now, we're going to talk about power a little bit more explicitly here in a minute, but it's worth looking at this now because it's illustrative of how they and social justice theorists like them, divide the peoples of the world into, t- into groups. And to be clear, Sensoy and D'Angelo's chart is just one of many. You can find these all over the place. This is not an idea that's unique to them. Now, the chart, you've probably seen ones like it, has three columns, a minority or target group on the left and a corresponding majority or dominant group on the right. Now, among the minority groups are peoples of color, the poor, women, transgender people, non-Christian religious people, disabled people, and so on. These are the oppressed groups. In the right-hand column are the corresponding oppressor groups, white people, upper-class people, cisgender men, heterosexuals, Christians, the able-bodied, and so on. And down the middle are the isms, the injustices that the oppressor groups are thought to, by definition, perpetrate, on the oppressed groups, racism, classism, sexism, heterosexism, religious oppression, etc. And this, by the way, is where the concept of privilege comes into the discussion. The oppressor groups are able to oppress because of the privilege they are afforded by their power. White privilege, male privilege, and so on. Privilege leads inexorably and inevitably to oppression. It can do no other thing. Now, this is what my friend was referring to when he referred to studied partiality. Making thoughtful, intentional distinctions between people, which group are you in, oppressed or oppressor? And this, we should note, is a far cry from Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream that his children be judged not by the color of their skin, 
but by the content of their character. So dividing people up like this into oppressors and oppressed by discrete character traits is, I will submit to you, totally unbiblical. Now, the Bible does talk about groups of people, and it does talk about groups of people being involved in particular sins. For instance, the rich oppressing the poor, and Jews mistreating Samaritans. And we can speak in similarly broad terms when addressing what we take to be the contemporary expressions of societal or group sin. But the Bible does not and never accuses individuals of sin simply on account of their characteristics or by their mere membership in a group. Neil Shenvey, a born-again theoretical chemist, I always wanted that kind of sentence to be true of me, theoretical chemist sounds so cool, um, but he has become a go-to source on the apologetics of biblical justice versus social justice. Shenvey says that dividing individuals up into oppressed or oppressor groups quote, assumes an adversarial relationship between individuals that is profoundly antithetical to Christianity. It depends crucially on differentiating identity groups into oppressor and oppressed. Conversely, he continues, if all human beings shared some fundamental identity marker, that fact would severely undermine the dichotomy between oppressor and oppressed. Yet Christianity, he suggests, offers not just one, but three of these fundamental identity markers, which are shared by all human beings across lines of race, class, gender, and everything else. According to the Bible, all human beings are made in God's image, all human beings are naturally dead in sin, and all human beings need salvation in Christ. The clearest biblical explication of this idea is what we read just a few moments ago from Romans chapter 3. All have sinned, no exceptions. But there's a flip side for Christians, and it's good news. St. Paul writes in Galatians 3, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to promise. So Paul here, on account of and in Jesus, breaks down all the normal ways of dividing people up by ethnicity, by socioeconomic status, by gender. There are, of course, other ways of dividing people up, but Paul's point is that no matter how many ways we might try to divide people up, in Christ, we are one. That's dividing people up. The second area in which we can see a clear distinction between biblical justice and social justice is in the location and use of power. We've seen this a little bit already in that chart from Sensoy and D'Angelo, that oppressed and oppressor chart. The oppressors wield their power over the oppressed by nature of their characteristics. Therefore, in the social justice schema, power is necessarily corrupting. Anyone with power has it because of privilege and thereby becomes an oppressor. There's no way to wield power benevolently. Power always leads to corruption. But there is one power wielder that I think it will be especially important for us to talk about as we investigate biblical justice. And that power wielder, of course, is Almighty God. 
As we talk about God, I want to define a term for you, the term hegemony. Now, hegemony in its simple definition just means leadership or sort of dominance, especially politically. An example sentence I found online is this, quote, Germany was united under Prussian hegemony after 1871. So it just means who's in charge and sort of setting the norms. But in terms of social justice, we're going to need to be more specific about this term because we're talking about society, that is culture. We need to talk about something called cultural hegemony. Now, cultural hegemony is the idea associated particularly with the Italian thinker Antonio Gramsci, that the ruling class, whoever's in charge, can manipulate the value systems and the norms of a society so that their view becomes the normal worldview. In other words, the powerful, that is the privileged oppressors from our chart, get to impose their norms on all of society. And these norms, of course, remember, are oppressive by their nature because of privilege and power. So when we say things like, well, that's just the way things are supposed to be, or that's normal, or even that just makes logical sense, social justice would want to accuse us of perpetuating the norms of the oppressors, the powerful. That's why we saw Christians listed as one of the oppressor groups on Sensoy and D'Angelo's list. Now, Christians, you might think, since when have Christians had any cultural power? Now, social justice theory, though, would say that our current norms, at least in the West, are the long-standing results of a previous Christian hegemony, things like heteronormativity and the centering and celebration of the nuclear family, and that's part of it. But the real reason that Christianity finds itself on the list of oppressors and why ultimately Christianity will find that social justice theory must ultimately come against it is that our faith is built on a totally hegemonic power the ultimate hegemonic power. We worship an almighty God, a God who has the temerity to say that he made the world, that there is a way things ought to be, and that he will brook no dissent. This is completely unacceptable to a system of social justice that sees the exercise of hegemonic power as unjust by definition. So in the social justice schema, God himself becomes unjust by virtue of his power and authority and willingness to wield it. And yet, that is the unequivocal witness of the Bible. Imagine how a social justice theorist would react to the book of Job. Job is left open by God to awful tortures. And when he finally gets up the courage to ask God about his struggles... God basically says, who are you? How dare you question me? Who is this, says the Lord in Job chapter 38, that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. God is so raw to Job here. Who stretched the line upon it? 
On what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. It goes on like that for two whole chapters culminating with Almighty God saying to Job in chapter 42, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And then, against what any social justice theorist would advise, Job submits himself to hegemonic power. Behold, he says, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. In Christianity then, hegemonic power is not an unjust weapon that oppressors wield over the oppressed. For us, hegemonic power can be good, right, and true. It is sourced in the law of God. And here we see again the distinction between impartiality in the Bible that God has power and authority over everyone and the studied partiality of social justice, that by looking at their characteristics, we can determine who has power and who does not and work to take it away from those who do and give it to those who don't. That's not a Christian idea. In Christianity, a faith in which we acknowledge an almighty creator God Hegemonic power is what our God wields over us by right. It's not unjust. In fact, quite the opposite. God's decisions in his power are literally the very definition of justice. Okay, so we've looked at what the Bible says, and in opposition to what social justice theory says about how people are divided up in the world, and what it says about the source and use of power. Finally, I want to spend just a minute looking at truth. And again, much like the dividing up of peoples, we're going to find that the Christian view of truth is very simple and that again, Jesus stands in a category by himself. In John chapter 14, Jesus is preparing the disciples for his departure and promising that he will go ahead of them, preparing them a place. And he tells them that they know the way to where he is going. And Thomas famously says to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus responds, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's the Bible's teaching on truth. It is Jesus. Truth can be found by immersing yourself in his teachings and his life, both law and gospel, commandments and promises, and recognizing again that truth is universalizing. God's law is the impartial judge of all, and Christ's gospel is available to all. All have sinned, all need a savior. That's the truth. There are other truths, of course, but they flow out of the existence of God who reveals himself to us in the Bible. Social justice theory, on the other hand, teaches that truth is specially accessed by oppressed peoples. 
You can hear this in advocates calling for submission to the, quote, lived experiences of the people who fit the categories on that target side of Sensoy and D'Angelo's chart. Peoples of color, the poor, women, transgender people, non-Christians, disabled people, and so on. These people, by virtue of their oppression, are special accessors of truth. And people who do not fit into those categories need to be quiet and listen. Again, this is not the Bible's teaching. Social justice, again, employs a studied partiality. Only certain people, by virtue of their standing in the social order, have trustworthy access to real truth. Anyone else making truth claims is merely doing so to preserve their privilege and power. The Bible, however, is again impartial. God says the truth exists outside of you whether or not you are oppressed. There is no your truth and my truth. There is truth, and it is objective and discoverable by anyone. Indeed, it's found in God himself. Jesus is, by his own attestation, the truth. So that's been a lot, and there's a sense in which it's just scratches the surface. Uh, We've looked at the ways in which the biblical witness talks about justice by looking at how it divides people up. There are two groups, remember, sinners and Jesus, by looking at how it talks about power. Uh, God's power is hegemonic, but that's a good thing. And by how it talks about truth, the truth is sourced not in anyone's personal experience, but in God himself, as testified to by Jesus. And we've seen, I think, that these two worldviews, biblical justice and social justice, are fundamentally talking about two different things. One, impartial, and one, partial. So in our last few minutes, I want to circle back to where we started. What is justice? Because justice remains important. We are commanded to seek and do justice. We saw that in Scripture, justice is required of us. And that injustice is sin. So getting justice right is critical. Now, I like how Vahadi Bakum, the dean of theology at African Christian University in Zambia, I like how he defines justice. It's at the same time incredibly simple and amazingly profound. Justice, he says, is that God's will is done. And before we get to the rest of what Bakum says, about biblical justice, which is how we're going to wrap up our time this morning. Before we get there, we're going to let him summarize social justice for us. As opposed to biblical justice, what is social justice and what are its goals? Social justice, he says, defines injustice as anything that produces or allows an inequitable outcome. Therefore, the goal of social justice must be the forcing of equitable outcomes, described as the elimination of of all forms of oppression. A just society is seen as a society in which oppression doesn't exist. But remember, social justice is not about the heart of a sinner. It's about groups and about outcomes. It does not submit to the biblical mandate to be impartial. It is studiously partial. And that's what leads to its errors, even though its goal is a laudable one. Social justice errs in the way it divides people up. Unlike the Bible, it divides people into oppressor and oppressed groups. It also errs in its description of and talk about the use of power. It sees any hegemonic power, even that wielded by God, as a wicked thing. 
It also errs in its teaching that truth is not firm, objective, and findable by everyone, but is instead accessible specially by members of oppressed groups. And with these flawed presuppositions, we'll see that social justice has a flawed prescription for achieving the justice that it desires. So in a social justice schema, remember, the goal of justice is the elimination of oppression, defined by the forcing of equitable outcomes. This is achieved by a four-step process. First, the identification of disadvantaged groups. Sensoy and D'Angelo provide their chart as a helpful shortcut in this process. The disadvantaged groups are listed down the left-hand column. Then second, the assessment of group outcomes, things like graduation rates, incarceration rates, median income over time, life expectancy, a host of other outcomes are analyzed. Third, the assignment of blame for any disparate or inequitable outcomes. Again, Sensoy and D'Angelo aim to help. You just track your finger across the chart from the oppressed group to find the oppressor group that is by nature oppressing them. Disparate outcomes are always blamed on the oppression supposedly levied by an oppressor group. And so finally, the fourth step in the elimination of oppression under a social justice schema is the redistribution of power and resources to redress the disparate outcomes that we found in step two. In other words, since social justice assumes that anything a group possesses has been taken from the corresponding group of oppressed people, the oppression can be fixed very simply by taking that possession, power, resources, authority, whatever, away from the oppressor and returning it to the oppressed people group. So that's how a social justice schema would identify and seek to address justice. How about the Bible? How does the Bible define and seek to address injustice? Let's go back to Vadi Pakam here. Remember, he already said that the Bible defines justice incredibly simply, that God's will is done. That's it. But now we turn to injustice. The Bible, Vadi Pakam says, would define injustice as that which fails to comply with, to comport with, to rise to the level of the law of God. And that's logical, right? It means that According to Pockham, the justice that the Christian is called to desire and to work for is this, in words that you all recognize, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Well, this is a lofty goal, to be sure. How can it be accomplished? Well, Vadi Bakum, one last time. The church, he says, is about the proclamation of the gospel, recognizing that true justice must and can only come from hearts transformed through the person and work of Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells a bracing parable about justice. A servant is forgiven a great debt by his master, but turns around and refuses to forgive a much smaller debt owed to him by a fellow servant. When the master of the servant sees that the same kind of forgiveness he showed has now not been shown to another, he has that first servant thrown in jail. So also, Jesus says, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the kind of justice that God's prophet Micah has in mind. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? But how can we, 
you and I, basically self-interested sinners, become people who do justice, who love kindness, who walk humbly with our God. We're like St. Paul in Romans 7, unable to do the good we want to do and seemingly bound to do the evil we hate. We are, even in the church, prone to be that unforgiving servant. Who will deliver us, we cry with Paul, from this body of death? And the answer is, as Vadi Bakum said, Jesus. It is, in fact, through the proclamation of the gospel that we are delivered. Real justice from one person to another only ever comes by the transformation of hearts through the person and work of Jesus Christ. I had a good friend who once talked about the gospel, the good news about Christ's saving death and resurrection for sinners. He talked about the gospel as a heat laser aimed at our ice ball of a heart. Our icy hearts are the cause of our Romans 7 slavery, indeed the cause of injustice in this world. They, uh, they, the reason we do the things that we hate and fail to do the things that we want is that our hearts are frozen. And it's only the gospel that can melt a frozen heart. What actually happens is that when you hear the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ came to live, die, and be raised again for you, outside of anything that you ever did, are doing, or will ever do, when you hear that, the ice ball in your heart melts, and the now boiling water starts flowing out of you in every direction. When you hear that all the affirmation, all the value, all the identity, all the love you could ever need has been given to you for free on account of Christ— You're free to stop seeking those things from other people and you actually begin to love and serve them. You start to do what that unforgiving servant didn't. You start to actually forgive debts. You remember how much you have been loved and so turn and naturally love others. You start to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Your love becomes impartial. Who owes you what ceases to matter? All this holiness, this justice and mercy comes as a direct result of hearing the gospel because it's the gospel that has melted your frozen heart, turning it into this boiling river of love. So examine yourself, but don't first or primarily examine your gender or your skin color, or your socioeconomic status. Examine your heart. Where is your heart still icy? Where are you partial? Where does James 2 convict you? Leviticus 19. Where does Matthew 18 show you to be a sinner? Where it does, confess. Throw yourself on the mercy of Christ. He will forgive. He will redeem He will give you a new heart, and that is the source of true biblical justice. Remember, there are only two kinds of people in the world, sinners and Jesus, and you are a sinner. So turn to Jesus for the first time or the hundredth. There is an all-powerful creator God who has designed the world and made all people in his image. Submit yourself to him. These things are the truth Indeed, God is, expressed in his Son, Jesus Christ, the source of all truth. Don't look for truth within yourself or in any other person or group. 
Seek it only in him. There's one other way as we close in which we must examine ourselves. You'll note that I've left wide open the actual methods by which a Christian might seek justice in the world. I've done that on purpose because building on the same biblical foundation, a Christian might participate in a protest march or they might avoid one. They might vote for one candidate or another or advocate for the making or changing of certain laws. They might take $50 out of their wallet to buy someone a meal or they might seek a different way to feed the hungry. We must trust that the Holy Spirit is at work in the body of Christ and have a generous, even forgiving spirit within ourselves about the ways our brothers and sisters in Christ seek justice. Of course, we might see a Christian advocating for so-called social justice in what we believe is an unbiblical way. It's okay to challenge that. We must be advocates for the truth, but we must do so lovingly and with care. Remember that the world and the church are full of sinners, of whom we are the foremost. The justice is that God's will is done. Injustice is anything that fails to comply with God's will, his law, but the only answer for our failure to comply with the law of God is the perfect sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for sinners. No amount of resource redistribution or doing the work of social justice can redeem sinful humanity. Only Jesus can do that. And that's really the final nail in the coffin of social justice. There is no redemption, only work. There is no gospel, only law. But we know the truth, that Christ has come, he has died, and he has been raised. And on his account, God's will, justice, shall be done. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we pray that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Make us agents of your justice, proclaiming humanity's common guilt under your law and common salvation in your gospel. We know that the kingdom we pray for has been inaugurated by Christ's accomplishment on the cross and by his empty tomb. Remind us that outside of him, justice is impossible, but that in him, it is guaranteed. Help us to work for justice and to oppose injustice. Help us to faithfully proclaim your good news. We ask this in your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ's name. Amen.